an ADC or an after-death communication is a spiritual experience that takes place when a person is contacted directly and spontaneously by a family member or friend who has died. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio, Season 3. It is June 29th, 2008, and we have a very enlightening edition of the program for you on tap this week. Before we dive into the preview, I should say that the episode is sadly relevant this week, as BOA has suffered a death on the home front and on the national scale. Of course, on the national scale, we're talking about the outstanding and legendary comedian George Carlin, who will be hugely missed. And hitting us a little closer to home, good friend of BOA, Captain Beyond, Rick Cassidy from Imaginative Worlds, who passed away on Tuesday. Captain Beyond was a longtime supporter of the website, as we noted at BOA. Take solace, my friends and knowing that he now knows all that we wish to know. We're going to dedicate this week's program to Captain Beyond, Rick Cassidy. Godspeed, my friend. Now, diving into the preview of the program, why is it sadly relevant to the events of this past week? I'll tell you why, folks, because we're going to be exploring the newly emerging field of after-death communication, ADC, research, with the man behind the genre, Bill Guggenheim. We're going to find out how he got interested in ADCs and decided to begin researching the phenomena. We're going to cover ADC experiences in depth, including precisely what they are, and a thorough examination of the 12 types of ADCs. We'll also find out about the reaction to Bill's ADC research by other esoteric communities and how he answers the critics of ADCs who claim that they are grief-induced hallucinations. Plus, for the first time ever on the program, I'm going to share my own two personal ADC experiences. And, of course, there's tons and tons more. We're breaking some new ground here, folks, as we explore this emerging paranormal field in a deeply personal edition of the show. For anyone who's lost a loved one, either recently or in the past year or even a while ago, will definitely, I think, enjoy this pretty heartwarming edition of the program with Bill Guggenheim, the man behind the research of after-death communications known as ADCs. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill Guggenheim, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Bill Guggenheim and his former wife Judy conducted seven years of research on after-death communication, ADC, for their book, Hello from Heaven. During this time, they interviewed 2,000 people and collected more than 3,300 first-hand accounts of ADC experiences. Bill is on the Board of Advisors for the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IANDS, and is a member of the Association for Death Education and Counseling, ADEC. He presents workshops at conferences for bereaved support groups, hospices, colleges, churches, and many other types of institutions. His website is 
www.dealthdeath.com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 19, 2008. Bill Guggenheim talking about after-death communication on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We have a very enlightening episode here this week for you. As I was telling our guest before we started, it's kind of an emotional day, I guess you could say, for me. A year ago uh, today, my father passed away, so I can't really think of a better guest and topic to be discussing here on the program than the growing new field of research known as after-death communications. And our guest, Bill Guggenheim, author of Hello from Heaven, a new field of research, after-death communication, confirms that life and love are eternal. He's the co-author of the book. He's really been spearheading this after-death communications field. And I heard him on Coast to Coast, and I was really enthralled by what he had to say and knew that he'd be a great guest to have here on Banal of America Audio. And, and so here we have him sitting down to talk to us about the ADC field and what it's all about. So, Bill, welcome to Banal of America Audio. Well, thank you, Tim. I look forward to sharing the next hour with you. Awesome. Excellent. Um, I should point out that the website for Bill is www.after-death.com. Check that out with all kinds of great information there on ADCs. Uh, well, let's start out, Bill, with, you know, the standard bio background. You know, who is Bill Guggenheim, and how did you get interested in, in this after-death communication stuff? Well, if you had known me back then as a security analyst and a stockbroker literally on Wall Street, from Long Island, Manhattan, and New Jersey, growing up as a Guggenheim, and uh, I was a yuppie before they had the name, <laughs> and or the word for that, and uh, I didn't believe in life after death whatsoever. I used to compare people to flashlight battery, and then when the juice ran out, you threw the body away. That's the way I viewed it, mm-hmm. and I used to uh, argue against anything like religion and I was at least an agnostic, if not an atheist, uh, that way, and I just didn't believe in anything like this. And for me to come and later on in my life be the one who does ground groundbreaking research, I would have bet everything I had against it. There you go. I know that you had a, a specific story that happened to you that was really amazing story um, that really kind of opened your eyes to this whole thing. So uh, I guess why don't you tell us that story so we can get an idea of, of how this has impacted your life. Yes, well, this was on a Sunday afternoon uh, here in Florida, same town, Longwood, and Judy and I were married then. We had three sons, and we had a typical ranch house, single floor home, well, split bedroom plan, master bedroom one side, three bedrooms on the other. Behind it, there was a screened-in swimming pool, which is very standard, middle upper middle class Florida living, nothing exotic or unusual. Mm-hmm. And we had had uh, a conversation. It was about uh, April 1980, and we were in the uh, front of the house in the living room, and we had each gotten up to go somewhere else. We had finished talking. And just as I stood up, I heard a voice in my head very clearly say, go outside and check the swimming pool. I've never heard a voice like that before. And it was very clear, very precise. There was no sense of emergency to it or urgency. It was just a strong statement. And out of curiosity, as much as anything, I just followed it and walked from the front of the house to the rear. There were sliding glass doors. 
and then about 15 feet away, we had a wrought iron fence, which was a safety fence because of the three boys or many children between the house and the pool. And I noticed that the gate was ajar. However, the two older boys often went uh, through that gate to get to the backyard, uh, the shortcut for them. But nevertheless, I decided to open the doors and close the gate because our youngest son was only 21 months old at that point and did not know how to swim yet, whereas the older boys did. So I went outside um, just to secure the little gate, which was on a, uh, a hinge there. And uh, I happened to look down toward the deep end of the pool, and my heart froze because our youngest son was floating in the deep end without moving. I couldn't see him that clearly. I could just tell that there was no movement and he wasn't touching the side or anything like that. Yeah. I quickly zoomed down the side of the pool. I screeched out Judy's name. Uh, I think the neighbors heard it half a mile away. <laughs> and uh, just before I went in the pool, for some reason, I, I uh, stood there and I took my shoes off. I had heard to do that at some point, plus I had been a volunteer fireman in New Jersey before this. So I took my shoes off, and I happened to gaze down at our son's face and his body. His name is Jonathan, and he was not moving. He seemed to have a small smile on his face, had a little shirt on, the shorts and, and the sneakers, and he seemed to be about one inch under the water, just floating on his back. And I couldn't tell if he was dead or alive. I had no idea. I didn't even think about it. I just jumped into the water, came up under him, pushed him to the side, and Judy had heard me and came running out. And she pulled him out by the wrist. And uh, then I climbed out of the pool, and we were shivering because the water was still cold. And it took about 15, 20 seconds, and then he spit up some water, and he was fine. He did not even require CPR. Wow. And if I had not heard that voice or if I had not heeded it uh, as I did, he definitely would have drowned. He did not know how to swim. He was away from the side of the pool. There was nobody else in the area. And that we would have been another set of bereaved parents. Yeah. So he just managed it just in the nick of time. Thanks to the That's voice. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, later on, we determined that he uh, came out of a bathroom door, side door, which not only was usually locked, but it had one of those rubber kind of things around the knob where you have to apply pressure to open it. And he must have come out that way, gone over to the pool, kind of toddled over to it. And he, he was walking, but not, you know, he was only 21 months. Yeah. And uh, lost his balance and fall in, but I never heard a splash, never heard a sound, and we wouldn't have uh, been at that distance. I was diagonally across the property, so to speak, from where the living room was. And that was my first encounter of hearing a voice. I believe it was my father who had died in 1947, which was 33 years earlier. Wow. And would you say that this was uh, – now, I know that you were heavily influenced by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and, and her work – I guess sort of take us a little bit on the journey. Had you been studying her stuff and then this happened and then that sort of, you know, was the flashpoint or how, how did the whole thing sort well, of Well, this was uh, going back about three years earlier. Judy and I were living in Siesta Key, which is off Sarasota, Florida. And I had an office in the house with a split plan, so it was a little bit separate. But she said, uh, Bill, come on in. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is going to be on television now. She's going to be on Donahue. I had heard her name. I didn't know who she was, but it was like 9 o'clock in the morning, so okay, why not? So I came in and I watched, and uh, 
she was riveting in that she spoke not about death and dying, which was her field of research and all her books and whatnot, but rather about life and living, especially about near-death experiences of the people who almost died and went through the tunnel toward the light. And I knew a little bit about them uh, at this point. And uh, this was 1976, mm-hmm. toward the end of 76. And... Uh, but not a whole lot. And uh, I watched the show for an hour and was interested, and okay, that was the end of that. And I went back to my office, and I was interested in the Dow, Dow, Dow Jones Industrial Average and Wall Street stuff yeah. myself. I was a private investor at this point. However, the same show ran two weeks later on a cable channel. And it was, uh, Judy said, come on in, watch it again if you want. Okay, I did. And this time they had her name and a mailing address at the bottom of the screen. And for some reason, an emotional reason, I decided I'd be very magnanimous that I would write a check to support her work. So I wrote a check for all of $25, the kind of thing that people do for the Boy Scouts, or the Girl Scouts, or the Heart Fund, or any charitable organization. Yeah. You know, sort of a, just uh, that's my good deed for the day, a little pat in the back. It felt good, and I mailed it off. And I was figuring that would be the end of that. Lo and behold, several weeks later, I received a package in the mail, contained a a set of audio cassettes titled Lessons from the Dying Patient, and, more importantly to me, an invitation to attend a five-day workshop with her called Life, Death, and Transition, which would be held in North Palm Beach, which is directly across Florida, about two hours by car, and uh, that would be in the forthcoming February, March, a few months later. And at first, I felt very elated that a famous person like a celebrity, especially being on Donahue for a full hour, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, would invite me to attend anything, you know, let alone something like this. And I felt very good about it. But then as time went by, I realized if I went, what's the purpose of it? The people who should be there are, are doctors and nurses and social workers and, uh, you know, all kinds of healthcare professionals and probably some uh, terminal ill people. Mm-hmm you know, with cancers or things like that, or can still travel and be there. And I would be just taking up the space of somebody else. So I waited to the last day of registration. I had her phone number in in the mail, and I was going to call and just say, thank you very much for inviting me, but please give my space away to somebody, you know, more more worthy, more needy of it. Uh, Thank you. However, that particular day in Illinois, it snowed, and Elizabeth's secretary didn't get to the office, so Elizabeth answered her own telephone. Which is, you know, like you call Tom Cruise, you know, you don't expect to get him or, yeah. or anybody, but she answered her own phone. I recognized her voice, her Swiss German accent immediately, and she remembered me. And I went through my little talk about, thank you for inviting me, but please get my space away. And she listened politely. Then she simply said, Bill, I think you should be there. And I like to point out, I guess I'm a, just a patsy for dominant women because the next thing I said was, <laughs> Yes, Elizabeth, if you think so, I will come. (laughs) And I did. Uh, Several months later, um, I drove across Florida to the workshop. There were 70 of us. And to sum it up, I would say it was not at all about death and dying. It was about life and living, and it was very joyous. And uh, it was the five most incredible days of my life, the five most joyful consecutive days of my life were spent there. And by the end of the third day, we all wanted to call our families after the workshop was over, invite them all, and we'd all go off together into an island and just keep that love going because it was about love. And people were sharing uh, all the grief they had in their life, those uh, 
loved ones of theirs who had died and others, you know, divorces and loss of job, loss of money, loss of health, loss, loss, loss. And we were sharing all that in different ways, the psych, sort of like psychodrama. And we were bonding tremendously together. And the point of it is that the, uh, the last night of the workshop, Elizabeth, who had nothing to gain and everything to lose by telling the various stories to us, recounted how at one point in her career, when she had a great deal of opposition from the hospital where she worked uh, about interviewing terminally ill patients, because this was the 50s and 60s back then, nobody was terminally ill, according to the staff. Everybody was going, everybody was going to get well and go home. So they didn't like her looking for and interviewing people that she considered were terminally ill. Yeah. And obviously there were many in the wards and whatnot in Chicago. And... Uh, so they put a lot of pressure on her, trying to get rid of her and her research and her books and whatnot. And she was literally going to type up a letter of resignation the next day. However, uh, she had walked somebody down to the elevator and was standing there about to walk back to her office in an office building. And there was a woman standing there who said, Dr. Ross, may I have a few moments of your time? All right. And the two women walked down a hallway. And Elizabeth noticed one thing about this woman. She was not fully solid, as you or I would be, to each other. Yeah. And she also knew she had seen this woman before. She recognized her but couldn't place her right away. And Elizabeth did a great deal of what she called reality testing because she is a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she wanted to check her own senses out and whatnot as they walked down and finally entered her office. And then this woman turned to her and said, Dr. Ross, you must promise me not to quit your research. It's much too important. You must not resign. And Elizabeth recognized who this woman was at this point. And it was a patient of hers who had died 10 months earlier. Wow. I had, by the way, I had never heard this story before, but apparently it had been, uh, she had been interviewed and it was documented and things like that. And uh, before and since then. And Elizabeth, having uh, remembered that this woman had a long, pro- prolonged dying process, there was a minister involved and uh, several other people, and she asked the woman, would you please mind writing a brief note to your minister? And the woman took a pencil and paper and apparently literally wrote a note to her minister. And then again, she elicited the same promise a second time from Elizabeth that she not quit but continue her research. Elizabeth said she would. The woman walked toward the door and went out the doorway. And Elizabeth paused a moment, then ran after her, looked up and down the hallway, and there was nobody to be seen in either direction whatsoever. And that was the first story of this kind I'd ever heard. And uh, my whole concept of reality went tilt. Because if this could happen to one person who, as, as I said earlier, had everything to lose and nothing to gain by relating it to the public, you know, her credibility was at stake here. Yeah. That if it happened to one person, maybe it's happened to more people. I had no idea. And uh, somehow all the beliefs I had about the finality of death and that death was the end and it was like running into a concrete wall, there was nothing on the other side whatsoever, et cetera, uh, were, I can't say fully shattered, but at least now softened to the point that I was willing to open my mind and when I got home, begin some informal research. And that was in 1977. And at that point, there was no internet. Or there was. I didn't know about it. So I just looked for books uh, at libraries. I looked for books and magazines. And I went to our uh, local libraries and whatnot. And again, 
uh, checking out all kinds of material. And I found accounts here, one or two here, one here, three here. Somebody had even written a whole chapter of a book on these topics of people who have seen or had contact with someone who has died. But nobody had ever given them a name and nobody had ever studied them with any kind of classification or order or system to it. And uh, because of my own personal background being Wall Street and finance, I knew that, or I felt that if I did research and published, you know, if I wrote a book, nobody would ever publish it because the books that were being published then on near-death experiences, it was the only ones that uh, got a lot of attention were by medical doctors such as Raymond Moody and Melvin Morris or by some PhDs like Kenneth Ring and pe people like that. Yeah. And so why should anybody buy a book that I write? Who am I? No matter how well the research had been conducted. So I tried to get Raymond Moody to write the book. And I got to know him personally through a mutual friend. And while Raymond never said yes, he never said no. And so we just went around in a bunch of circles until 11 years later, one afternoon, a voice in my head said, do your own research, write your own book. It's your spiritual work to do. And I believe it was the same voice um, that I had heard about uh, Check the Swing Pole. Mm -hmm. And that was my father's voice. And it was, it was just ma as a matter of fact, but it was strong and it was clear. And, uh, okay, uh, I'll try it. You know, I don't know where I'll go with this, but I'll try it. So, and now Judy and I were married for 17 years, but we were divorced for four years almost at this point. But she was the one who had heard me talk about this, think about this, uh, read many books herself about these topics and whatnot, and I recognized would be the best person to work with. And so I called her. We were living separately, of course, after four years. And we had three children, so we, three sons, and so we made up. Uh, we'd gone through the yucky stuff, you know, that most people do after long-term marriage. And, and as I like to say, so there can be life after divorce if you <laughs> redirect your life to, to serving your children rather than just, you know, continuing on all the niggling little spats and mm -hmm. disputes that many people go through forever. So we were friends. And I invited her over, and even as we were sitting there in my apartment, the phone rang, and a woman I didn't know very well told me an account of, uh, of an aunt of hers who was living in Tallahassee, which was several hours away from Orlando. And the aunt had been visited by a friend of hers who was in the hospital, had been in the hospital, and the friend came to say goodbye to her. And she knew that this, her friend had died. And, but nobody had told her this, it was that the, the friend that visited her uh, and had come to her apartment somehow, just walked, came through a wall and suddenly showed up there and then said goodbye and I love you and thank you for being my friend and then left. And then afterwards she was notified that indeed the friend had died in the hospital at exactly the time that she was visiting her. Wow. And well, the one thing I was most concerned about, supposing we came up with 20, 50, 100 accounts. Yeah. In what way could they be evidential? What, in what way could they have anything to them that would make people think they're, they're real and not just the wishful thinking and the imagination and, and the hope of people who were deeply bereaved? Yeah. So I needed something, some beginning at least, and this seemed to be it because the woman had her experience before she learned her friend had died. Now, she didn't know the friend was ill and whatnot, but they were that close that she was deeply grieving in the death, and it was an older woman and things like that. So, 
But uh, still, she did have the experience before she received the news. So that gave me a little bit of confidence that maybe there'd be some stories with some substance there that could be checked out later as to the validity of the experience. Anyway, so we began not knowing whether we'd find 25, 50 people in you know, a year. And my job was to find people to be interviewed. So I'd go anywhere I could in the greater Orlando area. And I would sit through a meeting of any kind, support group or a church or a study group or your college, whatever, wherever I could speak for two or three minutes at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And I would get up. I was very shy back then, by the way. I would get up and tell people we were looking to interview people who felt they had been contacted in some way by someone who had died. And, of course, a lot of people looked at me with very blank faces, <laughs> like, what kind of a nut are you? But also I saw some people who were smiling and nodding their head. And I'd go up to them afterwards and get their name and phone number, and uh, we wound up interviewing them. And to make a long story short, we interviewed 500 people the first year. Wow. The first 200 or so were by in person, and the next after that we switched to telephone because of the distances. Bob were very great. And as it turned out, we began to get publicity. Uh, I, I would get an announcement of our work into a newsletter of various bereavement organizations, support groups, things like that. And people referred us to other people. And often these experiencers kind of like ran in within the same family. If, a fam- if one family member was open, often others were as well, and they would have an experience. So there was a continuity. So I didn't have to find all the people on my own. And a year after we began our research, one of the groups I had uh, contacted was a group called the, the Compassionate Friends. And I hope your readers or listen to me, your listeners will remember this name, the Compassionate Friends, because they are the largest self-help group in America, or actually the world, for bereaved parents. They have over 600 chapters in the United States alone, and many more in Canada and in other countries as well. And they, when they were going to have their... Uh, annual conference in Tampa, which is less than two hours away from our home, and we were invited to be presenters there. Now, this is one year after we began our research and had interviewed 500 people, and we really didn't know that much at that point, but we knew something, and these, so we walked in, and our first workshop was over 300 people. Wow. All looking at us to say something that would help them with their tremendous grief. Remember that the grief of a mother and a father feels when their child dies is the worst grief, most painful grief of all. I'm not minimizing anyone else's grief. I'm just saying the grief of bereaved parents is the most intense mm-hmm. overall for most people. And uh, they were waiting for us to give them hope and reassurance that their child still exists in some way or some form. And uh, we talked and uh, we shared what we knew, shared what we had. And apparently they were very fulfilled by it. And we had another workshop the same day, and there were over 200 people in that one. And it went very well, and there happened to be a uh, reporter there from the St. Petersburg newspaper, St. Petersburg Times, I believe, and uh, she had a photographer with her. She did a beautiful story about us and our work and our workshop, and the photographer took a picture of a bereaved mother who had been visited by her uh, daughter. And all of a sudden, we had a beautiful story, which we were then able to photocopy and mail out all across the country to find more people. 
Nice. And we began doing that. And what I'd like to do is define what it is yeah, that was we the, were uh, researching. That was the next question. It has a very, very uh, specific definition here. Yeah, you, you really go to good lengths to uh, really pinpoint exactly what an ADC is. So let's, exactly. uh, let's hear that definition. Exactly, because the term has been used and misused in many ways since then. But initially, our definition was and still is, of course, an ADC or an after-death communication is a spiritual experience that takes place when a person is contacted directly and spontaneously by a family member or friend who has died. Directly means that there are no third parties involved, such as mediums or psychics or Ouija boards or devices of any kind. Mm -hmm. And spontaneously means that we are contacted by the deceased loved one who chooses when, where, and how to contact us. Yeah. So people want to have one with their husband, their wife, their child, whoever is deceased, but you can't make these happen. You can only allow them to happen. Exactly. You can learn how to become more open to it, yes, but you, you, these do not happen on demand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For sure. And now one of the questions I had for you here uh, regarding the definition of ADC is that it seems like a lot of these experiences over the years have been lumped in with the ghost phenomenon. Yeah. Is that just a matter of vernacular, really, or um, you know, what, what do you think the case is with that? Well, okay. We purposely excluded ghosts and hauntings and all these types of paranormal experiences from our research because we knew that was squishy territory. Yeah. We purposely excluded anything to do with mediumship, not because we do or don't believe in mediums, but we wanted our work to be new. And either people were contacted directly in one of, as we turned out, 12 ways or not. We didn't know how many ways initially. We, we figured out a few ways, but as it turns out, there are 12 different types of ADCs. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to make our work a whole new category, and if it was sizable enough, and it turns out that it is. And uh, the term after-death communication has since been used by mediums to include their work as well with, you know, they give readings to clients and whatnot. And it's been used for many other things, unfortunately. But the, the way we define it, the way it appears in our book and the criteria that we used for all our research is it's a uh, spiritual experience in which people are contacted directly and with no medium involved. And as I said, spontaneously because the loved one determines when, where, and how to contact us. Yeah, and it seems like perhaps this stuff being mixed in with the ghosts is more just a case where uh, you know, the ghost researchers didn't have the, the vernacular to use for an ADC. Yeah, that's right. Uh, ghosts, I don't, I've heard about them, I've read about them. Uh, I, I'm not an expert on it at all, but there are many people who go to places like Savannah, Georgia, New Orleans, other places like that where, where there are ghosts reputed to hang out a lot. And But that, our work does not include that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. As we said, it's a family member or a friend, somebody you have known, somebody you are, are related to who comes to you. Yeah. So it's a very narrow definition. We made it that way. We stuck to it. And uh, it, to, I think the most telling thing is that in a, as a conservative, and I do want to stress the word conservative estimate, at least 60 million Americans have had one or more after-death communication or ADC experiences. That's our estimate. There was a father, Andrew Greeley, with the National Opinion Research Center, who did a lot of work in these areas, 
as far as statistics go, and he estimates the number at over 120 million, double R's, about 43% of wow. our population. But just sticking at 60 million, that's one out of five people. And if you stop and think a bit, with 300 million people, many of them have never been bereaved. Nobody close to them has ever died. So it's pretty high numbers of those who have had somebody who has died have, have had some kind of contact with that person. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, as I was telling you before we set up the interview, I personally had uh, at least three experiences that I would say probably fall under the under the umbrella of ADC. I'll tell the well, the first two kind of get lumped together anyway, because they happened actually a, a year ago today when my father passed away. The lights sort of uh, just flickered on and off in a, in a way. There wasn't any other reason why. You know, the weather was fine outside. There wasn't We weren't having any power problems or anything like that. It maybe had occurred two, three hours after he passed away, and then it happened again uh, maybe three or four hours after that. Mm-hmm. Being what I do... I was probably the most skeptical <laughs> of, of of all the the people in my family that experienced it because we were all in the house when it happened. But in looking back, uh, since it never happened again, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a matter of faith, I think, too, in a sense. You know, uh, people who have their minds closed to this sort of thing just aren't gonna aren't gonna accept that. Although, interestingly, a number of people who have been skeptics have had an ADC experience which is kind of uh, really confused them in a way because they say this can't happen, yet it's happened to them. Now now they're stuck with trying to integrate it into their reality. Uh, Men have more difficulty with this than women do overall. Yeah, that sounds appropriate. <laughs> well, as men, we're raised to believe in the five senses. We're mm-hmm. trained, or really, the American religion, and I don't mean disrespect to anyone, the American religion that we all seem to believe in is science. We were all taught to believe in the, of the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, and tasting, and all the instruments from the microscope to the telescope and everything in between that deal with the physical world and physical reality. The only trouble is that science is wonderful on the physical level, but it doesn't necessarily apply to the emotional, the intellectual, or mental, and the spiritual levels, even though they kept keep trying to apply it in all those different ways. Yeah. You say here, via your work, you've collected over 3,000 cases over the years. Yeah, we, we did uh, seven years of research and writing, and we interviewed uh, 2,000 people who live in all 50 American states, and all 10 Canadian provinces. I have no eye count so I included Canadians as well. <laughs> and uh, we collected 3,300 first-hand accounts. These were basically telephone interviews. The typical one lasted uh, 30, 45 minutes, and some went well over an hour, because some people have one account to share with us, others have s- several accounts. It could be several accounts with one person, or several accounts with different people in their lives over the course of their lifetime. The youngest person, uh, we interviewed some children, the youngest was eight years old, the oldest was 92. And these people from all different backgrounds, I assure you, both uh, educationally, uh, religion, politically, economically, every every different way. Yeah, so it spans the demographics pretty much. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. And having collected all those cases now, I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be no, but do you ever get sort of uh, worn out? Uh, of hearing someone's ADC story because, you know, I'm sort of peripherally in the UFO realm and I just can't deal with hearing another UFO story <laughs> when I go somewhere. So I can imagine maybe, you know, maybe there's down days where you're like, listen, 
I appreciate your ADC experience, but I'm just trying to buy milk at the stores. To be honest with you, sometimes I give a workshop for uh, two and a half hours, and I really want to get off the stage and get something to drink and go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the people want to share, you know, I have 10 or 15 people lined up wanting to share their experiences, ask me questions, autograph books, all that. And that's the time I'm probably least receptive. <laughs> I, I need a little break just for me. There you go. But the bloom isn't off the rose as far as the ADC stories and experiences go. Each one's probably pretty unique, like a snowflake, and, and in and of itself. That is very nice. true. And I never know who's going to tell me one I've, ne I've never heard of before or something. Everyone has a different wrinkle. As you say, there no two snowflakes are alike. No two of these are alike, although they're very, very similar, as people would see in our book. Because what I'd like to stress about Hello from Heaven, it does contain 353 firsthand accounts. Yeah. And each chapter contains about 15 accounts or so in the experience's own words. So these are not just excerpts. We're not just analysts. We provide the, the reader with the firsthand experience in the experience's own words. We, yes, we have to do editing to achieve this. But nevertheless, as I'll see, uh, there are 12 different types of experiences, a chapter devoted to each one, actually two chapters devoted to seeing deceased loved ones. Mm -hmm. And they can see a progression from the more simple to the more complex within the chapter. And you'll see that the wording is very, very similar from person to person. And uh, it's, it's amazing to us uh, how similar these experiences are yeah. as far as uh, hum human wording and human reaction and response to them. And the one uh, thing in common is that people feel loved and see people often feel an overwhelming sense of peace when they have one of these experiences. It's that peace that passes all understanding. I'm not saying that's true in every case, but where they actually see the deceased loved one or hear them and things like that, the peace is very, very strong and very prevalent. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely want to put over the book, Hello from Heaven, especially in that regard with the uh, first-hand accounts of these things. You're not just proselytizing or theorizing on these. You really sort of let the experiences speak for themselves, which is great. Yeah, we, you know, this thing about I've interviewed 100 people, I'm in the expert. This is the way many people approach their research. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of research. As I say, we interviewed 2,000 people. We could have done four or 5,000 interviews. It was just a matter of time and expense. Yeah. But after a while, they were very repetitive. But I spoke to personally, and I'm the one who did all the screening of all the people we interviewed. And I personally spoke to at least 5,000 people during those seven years. And I did the screening. And after a while, we had plenty of one kind, so I was looking for more of a different kind of experience or, or something of that nature. And we had new kinds or new variations coming right in as we were writing the chapters of the book. Wow. And uh, right up to the end. And it was wonderful. Nice. Now, I've had a, a more complex uh, ADC, but we'll get to that uh, when we get further into the interview when we talk about the uh, the physical phenomena, but we'll, we'll wait for that. But it's a, it's a good one. I don't think you've ever heard one like this before, mm -hmm. but we'll, 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 uh, we'll do that when we get there. Before we start looking at the 12 types of ADCs, uh, my last sort of big picture question as far as the field goes is, have you had any experiences, to preface the question, I guess you could say, the, the paranormal field or the esoteric field is sort of ripe with turf wars. People sort of, you know, they don't want other people getting into their research. Have you had any problems with people from, you know, the NDE or ghost community that are like, you know, we know what those are, they're ghosts or their near-death experiences or anything like that, or are they pretty supportive of, of your new branch of research? Interesting. Nobody's asked, ever asked me that question before. 
And uh, actually, it's been the opposite. I've been received nothing but support. For instance, I belong to a group called IANS, International Association for Near-Death Studies, mm-hmm. and 90% or more of their work is dealt deals with near-death experiences. I have researchers, I have experiencers, I have people who are interested in the topic, but I've given workshops at their national conferences many times, and they're very supportive of my work and of of me personally, but uh, basically of the work and also the work of a woman named Maggie Callanan, who's a hospice nurse, and she does uh, workshops on nearing death awareness. And this is what ha- what she has learned as patients are dying, what they see, what they experience, which uh, has not been widely reported on except by, by her and her book, Final Gifts, and her newest book, Final Journeys. Okay, yeah, so it sounds like they're pretty cool. It, it seems as like- far as ghost people go, I was invited to a ghost society here in Orlando. And I'll have a very funny story I'll share with you. I went first just to see, because that was so unusual, I didn't know I was getting into it. So I just went once to see what who goes there, what are these people into. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy who was dressed up all gothic and looked like Dracula kind of thing <laughs> with teeth and fangs and everything. And I, I thought, gee, this is strange. I, how will I talk to this group two weeks from now? And what I didn't recognize at the first, he was going to, this was right before Halloween, and he was on his way to a costume party. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went back and uh, gave my regu- regular presentation about three weeks later to the same group, he was one of the most uh, verbal and uh, knowledgeable and intelligent people in the room. Well, that's good. And, uh, but I, uh, he, he just blew me away. I figured this is not my audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be a little off-putting, I think. But uh, the, the, many, actually, of the people who attend groups like this are people who are involved with hospice and are looking for proof of life after death for themselves. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the the NDE community and that hospice realm and stuff is pretty welcoming in that regard. Yes, not they are. As, not and our work, forward. frankly, is welcomed by mediums because our after-death communication, if ordinary people are, communic- are uh, contacted by deceased loved ones, then why wouldn't it stand to reason that certain people who are much more sensitive and open could be contacted by many people and have the gift of being able to receive information or messages from those who have done crossed over back to people who are on this side. So uh, our work does at least substantiate to a degree that mediumship can exist and does exist, and that's um, you know, worthy of consideration. But at the same time, I am not endorsing all mediums. It's not our field, and while I certainly believe in a few of them as being authentic, I do not want to have your listeners believe that um, in any way saying every medium's authentic, I do not think so. Exactly, yeah, we got to stress that. Do your own homework, folks, on mediums, and, and you know, uh, and buyer beware, I guess, is yes. the best mm-hmm. expression mm-hmm. to use on that. Basically, to me, and I'll say this much, I believe that the medium has been trained and certified, and there are groups that certify them, National Association of Spiritual Churches, NESC, and they have to prove themselves over a three-year period. That's one thing. But if you just wake up one morning and you decide, aha, I'm going to be Madame Catherine, and I'm going to make some business cards and have a sign out, beware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
exactly, yeah. Now let's uh, let's dive into the 12 types of ADCs because this is pretty interesting and it'll really help people wrap their mind around you know what we're what we're dealing with here. So let's sort of run down the list and feel free to flush them out as as well as you like. All right, I will. Uh, the most common one is sensing or feeling the presence of the one who's died, mm -hmm. and this can happen literally right after they have died and during the weeks and months following their death. And any of these experiences can occur months, weeks, months, and years later, which I'll cover later on in our, in our interview. Mm -hmm. But when we feel someone's presence shortly after their death, their transition, we say, oh, I'm just uh, imagining this, I'm making it up because I'm thinking about the person, I'm missing the person. So many of these are just blown, blown off. Yeah. Thinking that it's just a aberration of our own mind, but if, they, uh, if it occurs several years later, then people are more open to it, and they can literally, and, and the accounts in the book show this, they can literally say where in the room they feel the person is, their deceased loved one is, and when they come and when they leave. It's very, very precise about uh, that as well, and sometimes they report a sensation of warmth or, or of coldness. So there are variations here. But feeling the presence is very common, probably the most common of all. And I believe that the, our deceased loved ones have come back to try to communicate with us. So what we say is, other than if you're driving a car or that kind of thing, if you feel their presence, sit down, relax, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and open your mind, and reach out to them and say, do you have a message for me? And maybe you'll hear something in your mind. Then you receive a, a verbal message, because the next category, which is very common, is hearing a voice. And some people hear a voice through their ears, just like you and I are mm -hmm. when we speak. Uh, however, the majority say they, their communication is by telepathy, which is mind-to-mind -mind contact. Yeah. Just as I heard my father's voice inside my head. I didn't hear it through my ears. It was just a very clear message inside. And until you've had this kind of experience, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you you hear the words. They're very clear. They're distinct. You don't have to guess. Yeah. And some people have even learned how to have two-way communication with a loved one who has died, such as widows and widowers who had a long-term marriage. And uh, I remember meeting a woman here in Orlando in a bookstore, and she said that she and her husband, when he was alive, used to operate a business together, and that while he died a few years ago, she communicates with him on a regular basis, and he gives her guidance on how to continue to operate their business. Wow. Probably. Now, that's unusual. That's the exception, but I'm saying it can be ongoing communication. Mm -hmm. And when they hear the voice now, is there a thematic element to what the messages are? Now I know. Yeah, well, we cover the messages now if, if, if you like, but the most typical messages, whether again, whether these are actual verbal messages or just uh, they intuit what they are, they, mm -hmm. they pick up the message. The message that's being conveyed is, I'm okay, this is the one who's died. I'm okay, I'm fine, everything is okay for you. Don't, don't worry about me. Don't grieve. Don't grieve for me. Yeah. They want us to know that they're okay. They have survived this change, this transition called death. Uh, they're saying, I'm happy. Everything will be all right. Go on with your own life. And if you stop and deal with grief and the people who are bereaved, there are two parts of it. One is what we feel about the one who died. Are, does that person still exist? Are they okay? Did they go to heaven or perhaps elsewhere? You know, all these questions that we have if we believe in 
or even accept the possibility of life after death, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're letting us know they're okay, they're fine, we don't need to be concerned or worried about them. The other part is that when we lose a loved one who we're very close to, whether it be a family member or a friend, it's an emotional amputation. There's some part of us that will never be there again in this lifetime. And it's like, symbolically, like losing an arm or a leg or something like that. Yeah. And it takes years, in some cases, to heal from that, especially for parents who lose, who've lost one or more children. Or a, a husband and wife who have had, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 year marriage and one of them leaves, dies. It's an overwhelming sense of loss at first and nobody else can fulfill. So there, uh, we still have to work through that. And, uh, that's why they're saying go on with their own life. Yeah. They'll often say, you know, I'll always be there for you. I'm watching over you. That's kind of a guardian angel kind of spirit guide kind of statement. Um, sometimes I'll say, I'll see you again, or meaning I'll visit you again here in this life. I look behind all these, whether it's said or not said, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, is I love you. It, all these experiences are based upon love in one form or another. Yeah. And sometimes I say goodbye, meaning goodbye for now, uh, and I'll see you, you know, when you make your transition. Or a goodbye for the moment, but I'll come back again in another ADC. Okay, and they don't uh, specify when, of course. What's that? They don't specify when they'll come back, but they'll goodbye for now. Yeah. <laughs> another category is uh, tactile or feeling a touch. Many people feel uh, something like an arm around their shoulders or their back, or they feel a kiss, a caress, a stroke, some kind of tap, a pat, a hug. Some people. Uh, it, it really depends on the person. Some people have a way of tussling somebody else's hair as they walk by, as an example. Yeah. Or they put a hand on your shoulder. Or they cuddle in a certain way if it's a husband and wife, things like this. It's something that it's an unmistakable touch that you associate only with that one person. And uh, usually this is between people who are very close have been very close emotionally and physically or else they wouldn't identify it. Mm -hmm. So all these, again, are signs of affection, nurturing, and love. So feeling a touch. It's a small category. Uh, a mother can sense that with a, a very young baby who died. And uh, it's very tragic well, to lose an infant, of course, but they can know the baby's touch of their face, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's uh, very, very comforting experiences to read, very touching experiences. That's a pun. I don't mean it's a pun, but it is a touching experience to read. Okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, smelling of fragrance, olfactory experiences are very interesting because this is the one kind, one of the kinds that can be shared by many people. Mm -hmm. I'll get to that in a moment. But this is where you smell a fragrance, such as a cologne or a perfume or an aftershave lotion uh, your loved one wore. It could be their favorite flower. Uh, bath powder, tobacco products, favorite food that that person uh, maybe made or ate a lot of or whatever. Almost anything uh, that involves a scent or it could be their own personal scent. I mean that in a pos positive way, like yeah. a baby has a certain personal scent. And what's interesting about, like, say, smelling flowers, let's pretend we're in Minnesota in the middle of the winter. It's not ice and snow outside and you're working in an office building that's, you know, climate controlled, and you're sitting in an office cubicle, and you smell the scent of lilacs. Yes, your whole area is suffused with that fragrance. Mm -hmm. 
and you don't say anything to anybody, but you immediately, that reminds you of your grandmother because she was a great lilac lover and she wore lilac perfume or she grew lilacs or gave them away a lot or whatever. But you associate lilacs with her and nobody else. And then somebody else comes along and starts sniffing the air and say, hmm, where's that wonderful smell of lilacs coming from? You haven't, you haven't said anything. They on their own can smell it. And then a third or fourth or fifth person can come along and smell it. And yet there are no lilacs there, no flowers, no, no, no perfume, no cologne, no nothing. And so the ones that involve this uh, smelling of fragrance can be shared by a whole number of people. And we have one case in the book where after a funeral of a little girl, the mother went back to her home. She opened the door, and the whole house was filled with a scent of roses. Now, But there were no roses there. And as the other people came back from the funeral, um, 12 people came in, and all, 11 of them also smelled the roses. And the only one who didn't was a woman who had never known the little girl before she had died. Huh. So you see, even by indirection, you get an ADC, so to speak. Wow. So here there are 12 people who smelled it and one who didn't. So these can be shared by a number of people, which, again, to, makes it an objective experience to me if more than one person is having it. Yeah. That's the, that's the key here. Dying shouldn't be that bad. It shouldn't be that bad. We're all going to do it. It's one of the few fair things in life. Everybody catches it once. <laughs> and dying should be fun. There should be some sort of a look ahead. I mean, after all, when you die, you're going to find out where you go. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Haven't we been wondering about that a long time? Where the hell we go? Isn't that the biggest thing we have to wonder about? Where the hell do you go? I don't know. Joe thinks he knows. I know Joe thinks he knows, but Joe don't know. Where do we go? Nobody knows. Obviously, the most exciting experiences, because we are oriented this way, are the visual ones mm -hmm. where we actually see. This is when we're wide awake, eyes open, wherever we are, and actually see our deceased loved one, whether it be a family member or a friend. So we divide it into two categories only because it's quite common and uh, you'll see in a moment. But we call it one partial visual where you see just their head and shoulders or from the waist up, the knees up, other than the full body in other words. Yeah. Or you saw the, your loved one only as a, an outline, some, a very hazy outline. Mm -hmm. In some cases, on, progressing onward from there, you go to transparent where you can see them but see through them. Translucent, where you see them, you see, but you can't see through them, but they're not fully solid. Right on up to some people have reported their deceased loved one with a solid to them, as you and I would be in the same room with each other or with anybody else. Yeah. So it's all different degrees of solidity. By the way, these can occur anywhere at any time. They can. We can wake up in the middle of the night, and Grandma can be standing at the foot of the bed, so to speak, or they can occur at any part of your house or home. Any room, it can be a, can occur at work, on the sidewalk, in a department store. We have accounts on um, airplanes, uh, oh, wow. uh, on a boat, you name it, anywhere. Huh. They, they decide when and where and how to contact us. And this is the most beautiful part about this, especially when I speak to people who had a loved one who died in some horrific way, like a fire, an explosion, a horrible car wreck, mm -hmm. a battlefield death, that kind of thing. Regardless of their form of death, when you see a deceased loved one, they appear healed and whole and in radiant health. 
typically with a smile, letting us know they're okay. But they are well, that you know, if you had to identify the remains and you have that horrible last picture in your mind, now you have a new picture to replace it because they are fine. And that's, they're showing themselves to you as they are now in their spiritual body. Sometimes if they were elderly, they go backwards in age toward the prime of their life. And uh, so rather than being elderly and infirmed, they appear to be in radiant health and as I say, much younger. Yeah. Nice. So these are the most obviously wow experiences <laughs> you can read. We have many of them in the book. And uh, you just know that there's something more happening here and that this is very real. And, 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 and you know what's interesting is that people who don't even have a religion or a belief system or anything almost sense that these types of experiences can occur. And one of the things I've done uh, since we've written our book, if I meet somebody who's bereaved, say, a year or two, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll say to him or her, have you heard from whoever, whoever died? Yeah. Have you heard from that person? And nobody, not even one, has looked at me like I'm some kind of nut from another dimension, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, what truck did I fall off of? But uh, they either say yes or no, or I wish I had her, but not yet. And there's some part of us that, regardless of our background or education or religion or beliefs or whatever, that intuits, senses, knows in some level that it's possible to be contacted by a loved one who has died. And this is across, uh, occurs across all cultures. And in many cultures, such as in Latin America, Central America, South America, uh, parts of Europe, especially the Catholic countries, countries of like Italy and Ireland and whatnot, and the Philippines, uh, and many other places. People have these experiences, these after-death communications at night, and they openly can share them with their friends and relatives the next day. The culture supports that. Here, we're so literal, we're so scientifically oriented that people feel... They can't go out and share it because if they do, their people are going to think they're weird or strange. Yeah, yeah. And now, it, that's, that's changing a lot mm -hmm. from when we first wrote our book and did our research and whatnot. But it's still not as open as it could be and should be and, and is in other countries. And I think as, as your research has shown that chances are probably if they did share it, then they would end up hearing so many other stories from the people around them. You know, yes, they do. They, they, they often do that because as one talks, the other... Uh, will share. Also, what's very interesting is, let's say you have an experience at night of some kind, uh, we'll get to this in a minute, into sleep state or dream ADCs, that you share it with somebody and they'll tell you they had a, the same or a similar experience the very same night with the very same person. Oh, wow. And that will be confirmed between two or three different people sometimes, or more than three. That somebody who's died has made sort of the rounds and visited a number of their relatives who are still in physical form. Wow. So again, there are so many different ways to see that there's something tangible, something real happening here. It's not just uh, wishful thinking and bereavement. Exactly, yeah. We'll, we'll get to the how you manage to decimate the grief-induced hallucination uh, theory uh, in a yes. little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess let's continue onward here with the 12 types. Now, uh, the next one would be visions. Yeah, vision is a very hard one to describe into words, and it's a small category, but typically these occur while you're meditating. If you can uh, think of yourself sitting there with your eyes closed, and then you see your deceased loved one, 
in front, in front of your forehead almost. It, it can be a small picture. And you're actually looking through this reality into the one that they exist in. They are, call it heaven, the afterlife, paradise, whatever your words are, uh, that's up to you. The title of the book, Hello from Heaven, came to me one morning. I didn't choose it. We didn't choose it. It just popped into our mind. And uh, it seemed to be the right title. And so we stuck with it. But uh, it, if you don't feel comfortable with heaven, use some other word, the afterlife. That's whatever feels good to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, other people who with their eyes wide open can see a picture. It's like a 35-millimeter slide suspended in the air. And it can, it's like a, it's a two-dimensional picture at one level, but it's, it seems or appears to be three-dimensional, kind of like a hologram. It's suspended in space. It could be black and white or in color. It can be small. It can be large. And you're seeing your deceased loved one in it, and there, there may be, or will be one or two-way communication. And uh, typically, again, uh, these do occur during meditation, but not necessarily. And what's the, I guess, what's the difference between the visual experience, partial, full, and the visions? Is there a the, little confused just in general about the, what the vision is? Again, it's very hard to put into words. You have to, when you read the accounts, uh, you know, to give far more justice to mind languaging. But you, these tend to be uh, small pictures, whereas the, when you see them, they're life size. So they're okay. full size. All right. That's one thing. So this is like looking at a, I won't say, let's say make it two feet by two feet. You'd see your deceased loved one in that size of picture. A okay. two-foot picture, and they're moving and they're speaking and everything else, but you know they're not just two feet. Yeah. Hi. And by the way, I also want to say that occasionally a person comes back as just a ball of colored light, huh. it's, and yet you know who it is. It's, uh, it's they don't appear in the human form, but as a soul or a spirit perhaps appears. I don't know, but uh, we do have some of those accounts. Interesting. Okay. And then uh, next here in the, in the hit list of, of ADCs is the Twilight Experiences. And these yeah, are sort we of we're getting uh, into that's kind of a funny category because we use, we didn't know about that until we began editing these experiences. We found out what people were using the same language. They would say, just as I was falling asleep. And what they meant by that is we in ordinary consciousness, which you and I are right now during the interview, that's called beta level. That's where we are wide awake, and that's where we do all our work and play and everything else. But as we learn to meditate or as we're falling asleep, we, our brain slows down, and that's called the alpha level. Mm -hmm. And then when the uh, deep meditation, you go into theta. Well, we're really speaking of the alpha level while you're still awake, but just relaxing. And you can tell that because as you're doing it, you can hear a, a, a clock will be ticking. Now, it's been ticking every minute of the day and night, but you never heard it until you became more super conscious as you're falling asleep. And yeah. all of a sudden, that clock becomes like a grandfather clock or something <laughs> or, or water dripping or some, uh, some, 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 some sound from something in the house. Mm -hmm and you become super sensitized to that. So this is as they're falling asleep or as they're waking up. And uh, and it's also typical if, if they're meditating or even prayer, praying, because deep prayer is like meditation as far as slowing down the brain waves. Yeah. And so people will say, well, just as I was falling asleep, I had this experience, whatever it was, or just as I was waking up, I heard his voice or I saw him in my mind or had this picture or whatever. And 
interestingly, as they wake up and their eyes open, often the person they were seemingly dreaming about in their mind is standing right there in the room with them. Oh, wow. And that's uh, <laughs> grabbed us. That's why we made a whole separate chapter on these. Wow. So, Okay. It's just a small category, but it's an in-between state of between normal waking consciousness and fully asleep. So it's the, an alpha state, really. There you go. Okay. Now, sleep state ADCs, ADCs while you're asleep, whatever you want to call them, people will say, I had a dream. I dreamt about my mother last night or my father. And then they'll add, but it was unlike any dream I ever had before. And what they'll go on, they'll narrate whatever has occurred. But to what the commonalities are, a typical dream is kind of like jumbled and filled with symbols, fragmented. It's, it's kind of is elusive. It doesn't necessarily move forward and backwards. It kind of swims in time. And when we wake up, it, 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 it dissipates. It's hard to hang on to unless we write it down or tape record it. Yeah. But with a sleep state ADC, these are much more colorful and intense and real than any ordinary dream. And they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And people can recall these 10, 20, 30 years later in vivid detail. Wow. It feels like an actual visit together because it is an actual visit. It feels like because it is. And you can have one or two-way communication. And now where it occurs, that's wide open. That can be a very familiar place or a very unusual place. Uh, as far as reality goes, it's whatever, wherever they uh, show up. You may, uh, uh, interestingly, as you're asleep, you may be having a dream and a loved one can break into it. And we have three of those in, the, in Hello from Heaven, where somebody breaks into the dream and uh, you have them uh, a visit together. So they, they know the difference. People who had an ordinary dream, and it's very common to dream about a loved one who has died, and a sleep state after death communication know the difference very clearly and can articulate it very well. And so uh, basically they're the same or similar to the experiences when we're wide awake. But the difference is that when we're relaxed, open and receptive, which we are when we're in the meditative alpha state or asleep, it's much easier for them to come to us. Yeah. And I say that because, stop and think about it. How easy is it to get somebody's attention in this day and age? Yeah. Call somebody? You get voicemail. You, you write somebody, not a lot of people write letters anymore. Sorry, but they don't. Yeah. You know, real letters or cards. Uh, you do email, you may get deleted. And the point is, do they call back or email you back or respond soon or eventually or never? And, and that's ordinary people, just, you know, friends and whatnot, chatting and all that. But if somebody's bereaved and filled with grief, it's much harder to break through that barrier of grief. And, and have them uh, pay attention to us and, and see us and hear us yeah. and respond to us. And I'm speaking now two human beings, one filled with grief, and their attention span is very short because they're in a great deal of pain. So how much more difficult it is for a deceased loved one to come to them when they're uh, hurting a great deal from their grief. Mm -hmm. But it, it does occur while they're asleep, and uh, we have many, many of those in the book. Now, the next category is one that I really am interested in. It's called out-of-body after-death communications or out-of-body ADCs. And I'm going to digress first, and then I'll go, go forward again. All right. The way I was raised, I was raised in a Episcopalian, then I was a Catholic convert, and uh, later on I attended a Unitarian church. Now I attend a Unity church. 
but it really doesn't matter. I'm just giving you my history. Mm-hmm. But the way I was raised was conventional Christian, is that when we die, some part of us called a soul, usually occasionally a spirit, but usually our soul leaves the body and goes onward. I never knew what a soul was, but it goes onward, and then there's a God who judges whether the soul or we were good or bad, or, you know, it's heaven, hell, and for uh, Catholics, is limbo and purgatory. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm not making fun of any religions. I'm just saying this is the way I was raised. Yeah. Okay. However, the way I've come to see it now, what I believe personally now, is that each of us is a soul or a spirit right here, right now, mm-hmm. wearing or inhabiting a physical body. This is our earth suit. We need this suit in order to function at this level of reality. Without it, nobody would see me, nobody would hear me, nobody would hear you. Uh, We couldn't hold a book in our hands, we couldn't hold a telephone, we we couldn't operate a computer, we couldn't, you know, play games or do work or do anything else. Yeah, it's like an astronaut or a wetsuit. Yeah, Yeah. when I say our physical body is like uh, astronauts who's gone outside his vehicle. And if that astronaut suit is punctured, it ceases to function. Mm-hmm. Same for the deep sea diver. I'm speaking now, not a scuba diver, but the ones with the big lead helmets. Mm-hmm. If that suit is punctured, it's useless. Same thing for our physical body. It can take an awful lot of abuse, but only up to a point, and it ceases to function. So the only thing that stops working is the body. But we, the soul, the spirit, continues to exist. And some people, spontaneously, and these read very much like near-death experiences, and there are other books on out-of-body experiences, but some people spontaneously, in good health, because everybody we interviewed was in good health, basically, unless we noted it otherwise, but they were not on alcohol or drugs, because we eliminated anybody who admitted that they were when they were interviewed. Uh, these people have left their physical body and then encountered a deceased loved one in the same general space, such as their home, short distance away outside of their home, several hundred miles away, and some people have literally gone to that other level where their deceased loved one exists here and now. Again, heaven, the afterlife, whatever word you feel comfortable with. And they'll say, and it reads like a near-death experience because those people say that level is so much more real, it's more vivid, more intense, it's filled with love, it's filled with life. There There are no words to... Uh, describe it, the words are inadequate. Uh, everything is filled with light and happiness and joy and love. And that's where they encounter their deceased loved one. We don't have a whole lot of those in the book, but we have a few. But we do have, I believe, five accounts where people went through a tunnel, again, like a near-death experience, but these people were in good health at the time. They went through a tunnel and encountered their deceased loved one standing in the light, and they did have a brief visit, and then they were told they had to return again. So it's just something that occurs for some very fortunate people. And these are very vivid experiences and certainly ones they remember their entire life. I'm sure, yeah. Sounds that way. It sounds uh, powerful. It's a whole different way of seeing. And, and there are other people who just have out-of-body experiences. There are books on this who don't encounter any deceased loved ones, but uh, travel great distances and have all kinds of experiences. It's, it's a large field it's, uh, that is not generally known about. Yeah, exactly. The study we're written about. There are telephone calls, and uh, which can occur while we're wide awake or asleep. And some people don't wouldn't feel comfortable having a after death communication while they're asleep. 
so they, have, they call it a dream, and then the phone rings, they pick it up, they hear their deceased loved one, they can handle that. And others, however, when they're wide awake, they're in their kitchen, they're in their home, they're in a, uh, at work, wherever. Their phone rings, they pick it up, they hear the voice of the one who has died. And uh, they have a one-way or two-way communication. And when the line, when the phone, the, when the uh, conversation is completed, the line is severed. It's, uh, you, you never hear a hang-up, a disconnect, or a dial tone. It says, oh, the line was actually cut. Yeah, yeah, there's some really compelling stories in there with the telephone calls. And I, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about that because I had heard, I guess, rumors, I don't know, uh, people's accounts but never really backed up about answering machine recordings where, you know, the yes. call will come in and it'll get it'll get picked up by the answer machine and then the mm-hmm. message will be on there. Have you heard of that sort yes, of thing? Yes, we have. Actually, we didn't – there wasn't as much of that when we were doing our research as there is today, but with computers, people have reported getting emails. Oh, wow. Uh, with, without any established, uh, you know, sender, uh, they report, uh, that there's a message on a, tel- a telephone answering machine or a message on their computer screen or on a, there's a phone number on their pager and they call it and it ties in some way with the one who's died maybe months ago. There be, should be no reason for that phone number being there. And in other words, these various electronic com- communication devices. That have come along, the blackberries and whatnot. Wow. Yeah. What do the emails say? The email is just a short message for the one who, you know, same with, as a verbal message, such as "I'm okay, don't worry about me, I love you, and I'm watching over you," that kind of thing. Wow, that's um, remarkable. It is. Now you could say, well, people are playing jokes on them. People do not generally play jokes on people who are bereaved. Yeah. You that, stop and think about it. They, yeah. People can be very cruel and say and do a lot of things, but they don't generally do something like this. Uh, physical phenomena. <laughs> I call it the list of things that go bump in the night. It's very easy for power to go off, but we look for things like blinking lights, where power goes on suddenly, uh, where you lights go on in one room and then the other, then in the third one, the fourth room, the fifth room throughout the house, the stereo goes on, the, maybe a microwave goes on, all those kind of things can happen. Or if you're listening to a TV or a radio, it, you will hear a favorite song that you associate with the one who died. could be in your car radio. Uh, to, you may get in your car and the radio's on, but it's to a station you never even listened to, and there's their song just beginning of the one who died. Who died. Things of that nature. Okay. Uh, mechanical objects can begin operating, whether it be music boxes or toys. Things can be moved from one place to another. Photographs, you, you name it. It's as wide as the imagination. Ever yeah. Can happen and does happen. Yeah, this is the one that happened to me actually. So I'll tell you the Please story. Do. Now, my, I have to preface it by saying that my father he had a very body sense of humor. Uh, that's probably the best way to put it. Um, and and he had. Uh, a to- I guess you could call it a toy uh, that was really, he really loved it. He loved to play jokes on people with it. It was called a fart machine. <laughs> and and what it was was uh, like a little uh, like a little speaker thing that you would put, you know, under someone's seat, and then you had the remote control, and you would push it, and it would sound like a fart went off. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so he loved that thing. He would play the joke on everyone. Maybe a couple days after my birthday in January, which is about six, seven months after he passed away, I had gotten some scratch tickets for uh, for my birthday. I hadn't scratched them yet, but it was a couple days after my birthday. And I was alone here, and the fart machine had been put away in like a side cabinet or whatever with the remote right next to it. And I put the 
scratch tickets at his desk, and I was like, I said out loud, give me some luck or something like that, you know, on these scratch tickets. And then after I said that, I went in to make a pot of coffee, and then all of a sudden, uh, the fire machine just went off. <laughs> and the remote was right next to it. You would have to literally push the remote to make the fire machine go off, and it hasn't happened since. It was only that one isolated incident, and and it's sort of like you said, I had the feeling of love, you know, it was sort yeah. of like I knew that there was no way that that could have happened in any other way without some kind of intervention. Mm-hmm. That's sort of one step beyond the whoopee cushion. Yeah, exactly. I've never well, heard of this electronic thing, but... Uh. Yeah, it's sort of like an electronic whoopee cushion, and I'm yeah. sure you probably haven't heard of <laughs> No, this is the first. This is the first. That's what I, I figured, that. yeah. But like, like, uh, but it definitely, when it happened, for sure, it was like there. There's no other explanation for this. It couldn't have been a technical thing because it would have been. It would have happened before or since, and it hasn't. So it was a one-off, isolated incident with no explanation that I can come up with. Mm-hmm. You know. Although there is one thing here, and that's you said it's electric, and electricity seems to be a common denominator between many of these devices that begin operating or, or, or operated briefly yeah. by a deceased loved one. And uh, Judy figured out a lot of these are done by teenage boys because they're very familiar with um, manipulating electricity and computers and things like that. So, if, uh, in other words, a son who has died, yeah. that, uh, they can do this kind of stuff very easily. And if it had been anything else, I think, you know, mm-hmm. if yeah, the lights the, had flickered or something, I, you know, I may have been more skeptical, but this was yeah. like, when you hear that. Well, this is like his signature of his humor. Exactly, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one. I mean, we do have a number which are humorous because uh, Elizabeth Kuleros used to say, as people live, so, so the, the, do they die. In other words, say people die in, according to the way they lived in their own style. So if, if they're easygoing in life and they are accepting and, and roll with the punches, that's the, the way they die if they have a so long illness. Mm-hmm. But those who are very resistant and hostile and bitter and complaining and griping and, and about everything, they have a much more difficult time. And we can say that as people, after people die, whoever they were survives in, in character as well. And... Um, I'm reminded of a story. This is a woman who heard her father's voice. She was in Sears, Roebuck, looking for some wallpaper for her husband to hang. And she was like the particular one who was about to buy it when she heard her deceased father say to her, don't buy that for Jim. He'll never be able to match up the seams of it. <laughs> it was, in other words, it was a complex pattern, and she, he felt that her husband was too much of a klutz to hang it correctly. <laughs> And uh, another one that comes to mind, uh, this was by a man, her, her, this man's daughter told us the story, but her father was a very noted uh, writer for comedians. He was extremely famous in Hollywood. I'm not allowed to reveal his name, but he wrote for all the top people in Hollywood for many decades. And after he died, at that time, uh, his body was to have been buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Los Angeles. But there was a strike on, so they couldn't, of uh, the grave diggers, and they couldn't dig any graves. So they literally put his body on ice and referred to a refrigeration along with the bodies of many other people. And sometime after that, well, his body was still in that place, <laughs> I guess ice house, um, she heard him come to her, and she recognized who it was, and his immediate opening line was, just call me popsicle <laughs> popsicle and 
And I mean, that you see, see people are in character, and he was in character with humor is his thing. Yeah. We have several more like that, but uh, they're in the book and in Hell from Heaven. In some cases, in other cases, we couldn't put everything in there, but they're very amusing as well. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then here on the final uh, list of 12, you have the symbolic, symbolic ADCs. Yeah. It's something that people there, people are very interesting this way. Even people who don't believe in anything like this, it's, uh, and many don't, they'll say to their uh, close friend, whoever goes first, come back and notify the other you still exist. Yeah. That we call that a pact. And people who are young do it, and people who are elderly do it. All different, you know, people do it with their great grandparents or whoever. Come on back and let me know. And, uh, and others will just intuitively sense that they can receive some kind of a sign, uh, from the one who's died. And they just sense that this is possible. And we say, well, if you, have any doubts or whatever, ask, because asking is a form of prayer. We say ask a higher power of the universe or your deceased loved one to send you a sign, to give you a sign. And they may they may take a while to arrive, but many occur quickly. And the most common signs involve butterflies and rainbows. Hmm. Now, when I say butterfly, it's because, and there's a reason for this, the butterfly is the Western symbol for life after death. It starts out as a caterpillar, which crawls, goes through metamorphosis, and then becomes the butterfly that can fly that we're all familiar with. Yeah. But it's not just seeing a butterfly. It's the action of the butterfly. It's, maybe it will land and, on a casket and stay there for the entire, entire funeral process, entire wow. funeral uh, service. Or maybe one will land on your uh, finger or hand or, or uh, shoulder. Now, Wayne Dyer talks about this when he's on PBS, how a butterfly landed on, on him. Um, you may walk outside and see a whole flock of butterflies just briefly for a few seconds there, there, and then they all dissipate. It could be a species you've never even seen before in your area. Or you may be taking a walk, and a butterfly will kind of just stay ahead of you a few feet and kind of guide you somewhere. And if you follow it, you'll find something there that has meaning for you. So it's a behavior of whether it be a butterfly or a bird or an animal. We have many accounts. I think it's close now I've heard about 15 to 20 different birds being involved that people uh, have an experience with. And, that, and it's not that our deceased loved one becomes the bird, but rather we believe sends the bird to us. So it could be that the like a most common one is a red cardinal, mm-hmm. and the cardinal will come up to the window, maybe even peck at the window, or just stay around the uh, uh, patio or terrace for a long time. Somebody else was in a rocking chair uh, and just sitting there when they forget which species of nuthatch or something like that just came and stayed for about 25 minutes next to them. Birds never do things like this. So it's a very unusual behavior of the bird that's involved and it, it seems to relate to them directly. Yeah. And in the case of uh, animals, we have accounts involving deer and porpoises and a few others. In Hello from Heaven. Yeah, and you make a good point that it's not the person that's coming back as the animal, but they're just sort of uh, shaping the behavior of the animal. And it doesn't mean that every butterfly you see is a sign. It means there's a, an association with it, mm-hmm. and you just know it when you have it. Uh, there's a story I like to tell about this that's a very easy one. A friend of mine who here, is here in Orlando is a bereavement therapist, and her brother was killed in Vietnam. And after he was killed, they did have a regular funeral for him, uh, for with his remains and everything, mm-hmm. standard. And however, about six years afterwards, they had a very large family reunion. And this was one of those, those that was going to be held outdoors, outside picnic tables in a clearing, 
field of some kind, and all the family members were driving in in cars from you know, all different parts of the country, and that's yeah. a great big deal. And somebody pointed out to her as they were having their luncheon outdoors or their meal, whatever it was, look, look up above, and she did. And up above, right above this whole family tribal gathering was a hawk circling, circling, circling right above this group for a long time. And she got it right away. Her brother had been in the 101st Airborne in Vietnam, otherwise known as the Screaming Eagles. Yeah. So this is how these things tie together. It's not just a bird. It's in context in some way that you get it. Mm -hmm. And somebody else would say, ah, coincidence, nothing to it, blah, blah, blah. But when that happens, it's that special feeling you get, that that uh, warmth or chill or whatever you want to call it in your body, and you know. Yeah. You know, you know. Yeah. Other people find coins and a whole series of coins, when and where and whatnot, or feathers in one case, or ladybugs in another case, pictures, all kinds of different things or uh, symbols. And again, we if you've never heard from a deceased loved one, ask for them to give you a sign, ask whoever you believe in, them or their higher power or God or Mary or Jesus or whoever, or same thing for a sweet state ADC. If, if you would be afraid to have an experience while you're awake, ask them to visit you while you're sleeping. Asking is a key to stating that you're open, that you're receptive. Yeah, I think so, because like, uh, like I just told you with the story there, I had said something to my father out loud verbally, and then, then the yeah. whole thing happened. So it was like, you know, if I, maybe if I hadn't sort of said anything, if I had just sort of gone about my business, it wouldn't have happened. You never know, you know? What's, what's good is asking and then being open and not trying to ask, and I want you to do this this way yeah. when, you know, you don't be controlling, just be open. Yeah. So all, according to our research, everything we've learned about these, all these ex after-death communication experiences uh, provide comfort, reassurance, and hope to us who are still surviving. And they want us to know that when we make our transition, they will be there to meet us and greet us when we cross over to their side. Yeah, and it sounds like these 12 types, they're not mutually exclusive, because you say no. sort of like when someone sees the vision, sometimes they hear the voice. So it's, That's correct. You know, Mm -hmm. Yeah, these can occur. You can have two or three or four of these all, all together. And, yeah, that's correct. And they can occur at any time, in any, in any way. So there's no way that, I mean, we're, we're analyzing them because I have to be able to present them in some way. But when you have one of these, it may occur, uh, include a number of different elements and a few, a couple of other things that we haven't discussed. Again, all these provide comfort, hope, and healing. Uh, having an after-death communication or ADC experience tends to reduce the intensity of the grief mm -hmm. and to shorten the duration of it. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to say that because every mother or father has one or two or three experiences, all their grief disappears. It does not. But it does give them hope, and hope is the key to healing from this traumatic experience of the death of your child. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And like I pointed out earlier, you do a really good job of uh, decimating the argument that, that the ADCs are grief-induced hallucinations. So um, uh, let's, I, let's that's hear a that. Term, that's a term that's been used for many decades by bereavement counselors and other people who deal with those who are grieving the death of a loved one. 
they would listen to these people, and because they themselves didn't believe in life after death, typically, they knew, therefore, they they can't be real, so they aren't real. It's one of those things. Yeah. And uh, if somebody persisted in telling that they heard from a deceased loved one, they might be given uh, antipsychotic medic medications, as some people were. Oh, jeez. And they were very angry because nobody believed them. However, we came up with six categories of why are they real and not just wish fulfillment or imagination, magical thinking, fantasies, memories, or grief-induced hallucinations. Because we wanted something for the public. So, you know, we are very analytical in our society, and we do have a scientific bias as, as the way we look at everything. And we discovered, indeed, these do fulfill six different categories. The first one is when you have the experience before you learn the person has died. For instance, if we are here on the East Coast, and tonight I go to sleep, as I'm falling asleep or as I am asleep, a loved one comes and says, uh, thank you for being my friend. I always valued you. I love you. Goodbye. Then tomorrow I get an email or a phone call that the person was killed in California, we'll say, in an automobile accident, sudden death, in other words. Mm -hmm. uh, I will realize they came to me before I learned of their death. I'm not bereaved, in the case of a sudden death, I'm not bereaved before I've learned that they have died. Yeah. There's no reason to be bereaved. There's no reason to be. Now, that's different if it's a cancer or a long illness, but mm -hmm. when it's a sudden death like that, uh, it's... We call it an ADC before the news, before receiving the news of it. Yeah. The second category is when you have an experience 5, 10, 15, 25, or 30 years later after the death. And people can be typically bereaved one, two, three, or five years or so in the case of parents who have lost a child. But most people are not bereaved beyond that. So that's very compelling evidence, we feel, when it occurs 10, 15, 20 years later, and Mike, 33 years after my father's death, that something more is happening here than just grief. Yeah. Another category is where you're told of where to find something of value. Mm -hmm. And it's something you didn't know existed, or you didn't know where it was, or you didn't know what to find, and they'll lead you right to finding what, what it is. Yeah. And it could be emotional value or physical dollar value. It doesn't matter. I'm thinking of a woman who was led by her husband to go upstairs to their bedroom, go to the dresser, go to the upper right-hand drawer, and look under the paper. Many people used to put paper in their drawers. Under the paper, and sure enough, she found a life insurance policy there she didn't even know existed. Oh, wow. Uh, things of that nature. In other cases, people find something of emotional value. It really doesn't matter what it is, but they're led to find something. They're, they're told something which they can prove to themselves after the fact. One woman was told by her child to go to the cemetery that they had installed the headstone uh, at the burial site backwards. And sure enough, they had. Oh, wow. She, never, she was not there when they put the headstone in. Things like this. I mean, it's a whole different number of categories. Uh, then another one, like I had, where somebody's life is protected or saved by after-death communication. By this, I mean, uh, as I was told to go outside and check the swimming pool, and I found our son would have drowned otherwise. I saved him from drowning. Other people are told to stop. So if any of your listeners hear nothing else, if you hear a voice that says stop or slow down, do it. 
because typically a semi-tractor trailer or truck or some other vehicle will come out of a side street, and if you hadn't stopped, they would have broadsided you. Yeah. In another case, a woman looked out. She was told to look out the window, and she did. She saw that the barn was on fire, and she wouldn't have known that otherwise. And by calling the fire department, they were able to extinguish the barn before it spread to the house as well. So there are many, many different types of rescues that are affected this way. But uh, again, the common denominator is that you're told, but it's interesting when you're never told of the exact nature of the um, emergency. You're told in a calm way to do this or to do that, yeah. or not to do this, not to do that. I remember a woman, I don't think this is in the book, she was told, as she was walking in a, a large city late at night, she was told to go into a store with a lot of people. And she didn't know why at first, and she did look out later, and she saw that there were some young thugs who apparently had been following her. Oh, wow. Might have, you know, accosted her, mugged her later on, things of this nature. Another woman was told, take the long way home. She had her car service at a gas station. She take the long scenic way home. Don't go on the interstate. Well, when she get, did get home by going the long scenic way, she looked at her four tires, which had been rotated, and she found that the lug nuts were loose on all four of the tires. Huh. And the odds are that one of them could have come off had she gone on the interstate. So, again, people's lives are protected or saved. Another category here is a separate category that we call, uh, that involves people who are suicidal. And they you see the prevention of suicide. And these are people who are literally thinking about planning, and in two cases in the book, actually about to take their own life. And a deceased loved one, family member or friend, came to them just at the right moment to intervene to cause them not to take their life. Now, it wasn't the words that were said, but I think it was a matter of the timing and the very fact that somebody cared. Even though they weren't in a physical form, somebody cared. Somebody who had died came back and dissuaded them from taking their life. Yeah. And interestingly, we found out later that at least 60% of those who had come back had themselves died by suicide. Oh, wow. So that's, uh, I mean, somebody could do a lot of research on that, too. The ones who came back to prevent the suicide? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a kind of service to prevent others from yeah. repeating the same thing. And obviously, none of the people we interviewed had completed suicide, or else we could not have interviewed them. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And finally, the last of the six categories of why are these real? It's simple that where you have two or more people at the same place at the same time who share an experience, who share an ADC experience together. And so they both might see the same person or one sees him or her and the other receives a verbal message. Um, again, they're both together at the same place, same time. And in some combination, they have something that they can talk about and usually don't talk about it at the moment, but later compare notes and say, oh, yes. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. So we believe that after-death communications are a natural and normal part of life. And that's why I don't like the words paranormal or parapsychological. If 60 million people, one out of five Americans, have had an experience, and that's conservative, 100 million, 120 million, it doesn't matter. We're dealing with huge numbers. I, I, the way I view it, it's not up to us to prove they're real. Allow skeptics to prove they're not real. Yeah, exactly. Not authentic. Yeah. Not what people claim. That's that. That's, that's the way I look at it. This is not a small little thing that happens to a few hundred people, a few oddball people who belong to a particular sector or a particular part of the country or something. It's right across all all different backgrounds. 
Yeah, and like you said, it's much more culturally accepted in other parts of the world. That's right. Here in America, and, and probably Canada too. Uh, that yes. you know, that North America, that that it's, uh, it's sort of a stumbling block, I guess you could say, and, and lumped into the paranormal. But mm-hmm. hopefully, yeah. as as times change and generations change and that kind of thing, maybe it'll become more accepted. It, it already has been. Uh, people now talk about this much more readily than when our "Hello from Heaven" was published. And as a result of this, we believe that after-death communications provide modern-day evidence for life after death. And that's a big thing. I think that near-death experiences do as well, and out-of-body experiences. But after-death communications are by far the more prevalent of the two, because about 10 to 15 million Americans have had a near-death experience. Those have been very well uh, documented and written about, but extensive number of books. But after-death communications have not yet received that kind of a publicity and attention yet. So we're getting there. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you think we should touch on? Basically that uh, all these are contain one essential spiritual message, that life and love are eternal. There you go, exactly. Those are the final words of our book. It's something that uh, either... You may not believe in it, but I'm asking people to be open to it. And if they, somebody else tells them their experience, don't try to debunk it. Don't try to tear it up into confetti, as I used to do when I was a kid <laughs> myself. When I heard anything unusual, I just it had to be unreal, had to be fake, had to be, you know, uh, a trick of some kind. Yeah. It seems like it's always, you know, you'll have that attitude until it happens to you sort of thing. It can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or often somebody in the family has one. One of the more difficult questions that we have is if the wife hears from their child who died and the husband doesn't, why doesn't he? Isn't he loved as much? Isn't he worthwhile, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Or vice versa, if the husband does what the wife does. It's just that some people are more open. And that's why we say how to have one. Learn how to meditate, literally. Uh, you don't have to go out and join and take transcendental meditation, but you can go out and buy simple tapes or books or whatever, or just listen to music and just relax very deeply and bring yourself to a deeper level of consciousness each time. And that opens up your intuitive senses where these can occur more readily and more regularly as well. There you go. So it's something people can learn how to do, because I did speak to a mother who took a crash course in meditation and did have a whole series of experiences with her daughter who had died. Nice, nice. What's next for you? I would like to add three chapters to this book, to Hello from Heaven. Uh, We already have the material for them. Uh, One is the experiences children have had. By children, I mean under 18 years of age. Mm -hmm. We didn't put them in the first book. We thought that would be too far out. Uh, second category would be the ones that occur when somebody is dying. I won't go into all that detail now, but there are certain things that happen. But the, the, the main one that uh, people are very uh, uplifted by is ones that hospice people or people who are present when somebody literally dies, they see the soul leave the body. Oh, wow. And it's, it's uh, like a little wisp of smoke coming out of the top of the head or the center of the chest, and it forms into the likeness of the person. And so they wind up seeing the one who's died, and there can be one or two-way communication before the uh, one who's died leaves, goes up through the ceiling or out through the window. Mm-hmm. And these are quite common. Uh, a very touching story of a young couple with a very uh, very young baby, just two or three months old, as I recall. They were sitting in the uh, waiting room at a large hospital waiting to see a doctor, and their child died in their arms. But 
fortunately for each of them, they saw the spirit, the soul of that child leave his body as he left. And both the mother saw it and the father saw it, which gave them a strong belief and hope that they would have reunion with their son at a future time. Yeah. There's something more than just that that dead life was body. Okay. And the third chapter you're going to put in there? Uh, would be how to have one. Uh, we have parts of this throughout the book. But uh, there's another category which some people do about uh, using guided imagery to help somebody. You don't, you're not specific. You don't say who or how. You just uh, take them into a, a kind of a meditative state and let them, if they were going to have something, have it happen spontaneously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. Uh, what about uh, any speaking engagements or any appearances you think you want to uh, mention here or plug or anything like that? Not specifically. I, I'm doing something here in Palm Coast, Florida in the fall and also up in uh, Pennsylvania later in the fall, but those dates haven't been established yet. So. Okay. People can just check out after-death.com, find out more about that. And yes. Mm-hmm. Post mm-hmm. There. Yep. And most of all, read Hello from Heaven, and uh, that says it all better than I can say it in a, a 10-hour interview. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's a fantastic book. Where can folks pick up Hello from Heaven? Basically, uh, they can order it from any bookstore. If it's not there, they should be able to get it within a week. But uh, the, the big ones like Barnes & Noble and Borders and, and Amazon.com, they have it. Excellent, excellent. Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I really appreciate you giving us uh, so much extra time here. We got slaughtered for an hour, but we actually went quite over the hour. But I really appreciate it because we covered so much stuff here on the ADC phenomena in depth. I really can't put over your work enough to be able to take all these different accounts and, and not just collect them, but also to synthesize them and really put some order to chaos, if you will, is really tremendous work. And uh, it's uh, admirable, I guess you could say, that that you've created a whole new realm of uh, the esoteric world that I'm sure is going to continue onward now for generations here as this study keeps growing. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with your, with your book. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. My mother, who also, like I said, my father passed away. My mother's read the book as well. Uh, after I finished it, I gave it to her, and she enjoyed it quite a bit. I highly recommend it for folks going through the grieving process. It will really help you out a lot, and uh, that might be the the lasting testament, I guess, of the book, I think, uh, in the long run, because it really helped people a lot, I think. So, uh, like I said, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, and I appreciate you giving us so much time. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope uh, everybody who's listening will have a chance to buy up a copy or a follow from heaven or go to their library and get it. I mean, I'm, they don't have to buy it. It's only seven ninety nine. It's a paperback book, and uh, it makes a wonderful gift for anybody who's ever been bereaved and will provide comfort, hope, and healing to that person so we uh, we hear constantly from people who go out and buy more copies over the years to give to friends and relatives who are b- b- bereaved later on absolutely definitely it's uh it's a healing book and, and that's that's uh just just a tremendous accomplishment for you and judy so i can't put you guys over enough again uh thank you again for coming on the show it's a delight to be here thank you very much tim that does it for this week's edition of boa audio season three Big, big, super huge thanks to Bill Guggenheim for coming on the show. Fascinating stuff. You can find out more at his website, www.after-death.com. Pretty simple, A-F-T-E-R-D-E-A-T-H.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Only two left here, of course, as I mentioned last week. I'm going to want to do a little feedback of my own 
at the end of season three so we only have space now for two more and here's a very interesting one that opens the door for something i want to talk about so it's perfect timing this letter comes from philip in lexington kentucky here's what he has to say love the show how about looking into some alternative medicine energy medicine approaches are especially interesting to me there are a lot of questionable methodologies but progressive science seems to be leading to some same conclusions eft in particular is a discipline that is very intriguing yet unfortunately sounds too good to be true and then there is matrix energetics i'm not trying to debunk anybody but some clarity in this field would be very helpful another motivation for suggesting this is your recurring voice health issues might be worth looking into there you go that one comes from philip in lexington kentucky thank you for writing in philip i definitely want to look into settling what's going on here with my recurring voice health issues that's for sure i agree with you there my friend and as i noted here before we started reading your letter it brings up an interesting point and that is we're pretty much at the close of season three all remaining slots have been filled i'll be taping the season finale this coming tuesday so it's that time of year once again where i turn to the listeners of the program to send me any guest suggestions you want to see in season four and i'm definitely going to put down philip's suggestion of an alternative medicine episode into the pile beyond that i will definitely look at all the different guest suggestions that people send to me i'll do my best to procure the various guests that you suggest but please remember that it takes time not just to do the proper research to bring the guest on the program, but sometimes just to track them down. And I don't want to talk too much about season four, but I will say we're already well into scheduling some guests for the beginning of season four. So we're much more ahead of the game than we were in previous years. But that doesn't mean that we can't use your guest suggestions. So send them in to me. You know how to get a hold of me, and you're going to find out in a second. But before I tell you that, I want to thank Philip once again for writing in and sending in the show subject suggestion definitely something i'm going to look into we broke into the ghost realm this year for season three maybe we'll dive into the alternative medicine world in season four i'll see what i can do my friend if you'd like to be a part of boa audio listener feedback or you just want to get in touch with me here's how you do it there's three methods either a write to boa audio at hotmail.com Option B is go to banallofamerica.com and click the contact button. And the third method is, of course, joining up at the official Ben All of America forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Any of those methods will put your correspondence into my hands. And as so many people who have written to me can attest, I do write back just about every person that writes to me. So if you want to get in touch with me with a guest suggestion, a comment, or some kind of insight into what you'd like to see in Season 4, the window of opportunity is open. I await your correspondence. Up next is, you know it, the thanks portion of the show. I couldn't do what I do without the help and support of the outstanding BOA staff. Let me run down the list to you. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, top-notch reading material from the tremendous BOA staff, covering a myriad of different topics all over the spectrum of esoterica, 
I'm really happy that in the last year, the columnists at VOA have gotten more and more recognition, and it's only going to keep growing. They deserve it. Their columns are awesome, and I'm so happy more and more people are discovering them. Maybe it's because we say this every week at the end of the program. If you're only listening to VOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Make VOA a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. This week we had Bill Guggenheim on the show. Last week we had Bill Burns Part 2. And the week before that, Bill Burns Part 1. What does that all have in common? That's three bills in a row. I wonder maybe if that's because I've got bills on the mind. We note it here week in and week out. This show costs money, not just the web hosting for the program, so as many people as possible can grab the episodes, but also the long-distance, lengthy phone calls to guests all over the United States and all over the world. Those bills are paid for by yours truly, with help via donations from great BOA Audio listeners and BOA readers. How do you help us out? That's simple. You go to banallofamerica.com, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA Audio and Banal of America freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, we have an absolute barn burner of an episode for you, my friends. The incomparable Linda Moulton Howe comes to BOA Audio for a truly unique episode of the show. LMH is going to detail her entrance and evolution into the world of high strangeness. She's going to give an in-depth recounting of her infamous meeting with Richard Doty in 1983. We're going to find out whether she regrets entering the Earth Mysteries field and what motivates her to keep researching the paranormal after all these years. We're going to get her perspective on being a prominent woman in ufology, and we're going to find out where she sees the field of UFO studies going in the future. Plus, of course, much, much more. There is so much more I could say about next week's episode, but I'm just going to leave it at that for now. Trust me, my friends, this is an episode of VOA Audio that must be heard to be believed, and it will definitely generate a ton of feedback from the VOA listeners who tune in. That's next week on VOA Audio, the incomparable Linda Moulton Howe, talking about the world of ufology on BOA Audio Season 3. I will also have the blockbuster announcement at the end of the program of who the BOA Audio Season 3 season finale guest will be. As I already alluded to, I will be taping the interview this coming Tuesday and will formally announce it at BOA later on in the week. We'll have more details on the big season finale at the end of the program next week. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Once again, my condolences to the family of Captain Beyond, Rick Cassidy. He will be hugely missed. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.